This is The Rounds Table. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Rounds Table. Thanks for tuning in this week. We have Dr. Jay Spiegel, uh, who's a general internal medicine resident here at the University of Toronto, but he'll be soon off to greener pastures at the University of Stanford, where he'll become one of the finest hematologists in North America, I'm sure. Jay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Karen. So uh, you picked a very interesting article for our listeners this week. Why don't you introduce us and we'll get going here. Sure. This is an article that looks at general internists delivering care in U.S. hospitals and comparing whether they graduated from a foreign medical school or a United States medical school and whether that affected outcome. So-called international medical graduates. Uh, Jay, what is the bottom line for this article? The bottom line of this article is in this retrospective observational study of 1.1 million hospital admissions involving almost 45,000 treating internists, 30-day mortality was slightly reduced in patients treated by foreign medical graduates. Hmm. So can you set the table for us, set us up? What is the importance of this article in the grander scheme of things, or why did you choose this article personally? This was very interesting to me. Um, Many of my colleagues went to international medical schools. And I think in this current political climate and the ongoing social need for doctors, I think foreign medical graduates are an important resource, but I think maybe publicly don't get their due. So I think this is an important contribution to data on the subject and their importance to the public. Uh, So I I think that's an important, you know, in Canada, for sure, we've seen a growing population of what we would call international medical graduates who are actually Canadian citizens who have gone abroad. I think there's an estimated 4,000 Canadians studying abroad, many of which who are hoping to come back to Canada and practice medicine. So definitely knowing the quality of training and how that translates to patient care is of likely importance overall. So Jay, what was the design of this particular study? Where did it take place? So this was a retrospective observational study looking at a medical care delivered by general internists in hospitals in the United States between January 2011 and December 31st, 2014. So a non-surgical, a general medicine-based study looking at hospital-based care, not outpatient care. Who were the patients they included uh, in this particular study? So the way they analyzed the data was looking at hospital admissions, and the hospital admissions they included were patients who were Medicare beneficiaries. So patients who were over the age of 65 receiving Medicare benefits, and any of those patients admitted to hospitals in an acute setting, so excluding patients admitted electively or patients who left AMA, were admissions that were included in this study. And how did they uh, assign each admission to a particular physician to look at sort of the overall care that they got? So uh, they looked at actually Medicare spending. So it seems that Medicare spending is broken down into multiple parts. Part A is mostly the hospital costs, which are largely fixed. But Medicare Part B spending is professional and other services that are usually at the discretion of the treating physician. So they queried the Medicare inpatient data to see which physician was responsible for the most Medicare Part B spending, and therefore they assigned the admission to that particular physician. And how did they know if the physician was an international or local graduate? So they actually used Doximity, which is a large database of physicians, and they were able to cross-link that to the International Medical Education Directory to kind of see where where people went to medical school and where they graduated from. 
Yeah, and for our um, regular listeners on the show, we've actually come across Doximity before in our episode where we looked at the U.S. Uh, physician salaries. They used Doximity to link where physicians practiced and uh, and their types of uh, practice that they enacted. So uh, Doximity appears to be a reliable way, at least, to be able to identify physicians independently. So obviously, there's going to be a lot of moving parts, Jay, to somebody who graduates within the U.S. versus outside of the U.S., lots of different demographic variables. How did they adjust and account for all of these? So I just want to point out that all these international medical graduates then had to go through residency in the U.S. So I think that's something that they mention also is that, you know, these international medical graduates also receive further training in the U.S. But uh, some of the things they adjusted for, they adjusted for patient, physician, and hospital variables. So things like age, sex, and race for patients and for physicians, interestingly, also patient volume. So how many Medicare patients they actually saw. Yes, so sort of a multi-level variable adjustment to look at all the different parts that might affect somebody else's overall quality or uh, effectiveness of care. So then that's an appropriate approach to do so. Tell us, Jay, what was the primary question of this study or what did they do to look at the exposures of the, of the individual patients and their physicians? So uh, I would say that the exposure was really the treating physician. So a patient was admitted to hospital, and uh, based on which physician they were assigned to, the research question was, did the medical training of that particular physician affect differences in outcome? And what were those outcomes? Yeah, great. So the the primary outcome was 30-day mortality. So you know, uh, a very uh, hard endpoint, which I think is a good thing, you know, how many of the patients were alive at 30 days. And secondary outcomes that they looked at were 30-day readmissions rates, as well as the actual cost of care. So they looked at Part B spending on behalf of the particular physician. And it makes me think, you know, as a practicing internist, uh, I should say a practicing internal medicine resident myself, seeing how the staff attendings rotate on a, you know, bi-weekly basis, do you think that 30-day mortality of patients is an appropriate measure? In other words, are the physicians that they're assigned to initially when they're admitted, are they looking after them for the full 30 days? Do we know? So, uh, so they actually mentioned that they did, they did try and look at it both ways, either the original treating physician or the physician that accumulated the most costs. So I think that what they tried to do is they, their thought process was the person that accumulated the most costs in taking care of them was the person that took care of them for the longest and therefore was most involved in their care. But they did mention that they also considered uh, looking at the, you know, the person that saw them first, which I think you and I both kind of understand that a lot of the legwork in a patient's admission actually happens up front. So they, they looked at both things and they didn't find any difference. Good, good to know. So what were the findings? You know, you said they didn't find a difference there. What were the main findings of this study? So I think just in terms of looking at a table one, 44.3% of the general internists were IMGs. They were more likely to be younger and more likely to be working in a non-teaching hospital as well as hospitals without ICUs, which I think is an important caveat. But patients of the IMGs also tended to be non-white of lower socioeconomic status and actually had more comorbidities. But when they looked at the 30-day mortality rates, interestingly, while 11.4% overall, there was a a 0.4% reduction of mortality uh, in patients treated by IMGs, so 11.2 versus 11.6. 
uh, with a number needed to treat of 250. Wow. So despite the fact that those patients who are treated by IMGs appear to have lower socioeconomic status, which we know has an impact on overall morbidity and mortality, and also they appear to be sort of sicker at baseline with more comorbidities, despite that, uh, if you were treated by an IMG, you had a lower mortality rate at 30 days. Exactly. It's a very interesting finding, I think. And what about the um, readmission outcome that you mentioned? Yeah, so when they looked at readmission rates without any adjustments, it was actually higher in patients treated by international medical graduates. But when they adjusted for fixed hospital effects, there was no statistical difference. So the authors suggested that this looks like the readmission rate is actually driven by hospital policy and not really by the treating physician. Hmm. Maybe there are some internal pressures in non-academic community hospitals, which can be busier uh, in some centers, to discharge patients earlier, but that may lead to higher readmission rates. I'm speculating, but maybe that's one of the reasons driving it. Um, What about the cost of care? Any differences there? Yeah, so the cost of care was uh, $47 higher per admission for IMG-treated patients, which, you know, I don't know uh, in the large scheme of things whether that really is a significant difference on a, you know, on a public policy level. Yeah, I'm not a health economist myself, but I know that sort of 50 bucks is a couple of blood tests, uh, fancy blood tests probably, but, you know, a few different blood tests and that's about it. We're not talking about thousands of dollars difference per patient. So I wonder if that's really clinically or economically important overall. That being said, the volumes of admissions, you know, especially in the United States, are really, really high. So that probably translates into some important costs regardless. Jay, anything else interesting that you wanted to point out uh, or any significant limitations you were concerned about in this study? Yeah, I just thought uh, some of the things I thought was interesting in terms of, I know they tried to adjust for differences in places of practice, but just in, in my mind, you know, just for the places where I work, CHF in a patient presenting to a teaching center might be a sicker patient overall than a patient presenting to an outside hospital. Uh, That might just be my bias. I don't have any data on that. But I just wonder whether some of the increased mortality could be driven just by the severity of the comorbidity as opposed to just somebody having the comorbidity or not. I think that's a fair point. Did they measure severity of comorbidity at all in this, other than just sort of the number of comorbidities? Did they, were they able... No, they used an Alex Hauser comorbidity index, but I think that was more along the lines of registering conditions, numbers of conditions. They did mention that, that there were some things they couldn't account for, and I think this might be one of them. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your your point about tertiary or academic centers, which typically are tertiary and quaternary uh, centers, might see sicker patients overall because in my experience often patients are transferred from peripheral community hospitals if they're particularly unwell and need higher order interventions that are not available at those community centers. So I think your point is very well taken and could likely account for some of this difference in effects. You know, we might call that confounding bias if you are thinking about it formally in an epidemiological way. Anything else you wanted to talk about uh, from this study? Yeah, just a, a quick thing that they did mention that there were actually some differences seen based on country where the international medical graduate trained, but they couldn't really talk about statistical power. So I think that might need a little bit more study as to why, you know, IMGs from one country may fare better than, than IMGs from another country. Yeah, and you know, it's not to say that any particular country might be worse at training than a different one, because as you mentioned, all of these individuals 
ended up having to be trained in U.S. residency programs. But I do wonder if U.S. residency programs are biased in the way that they accept IMGs from different countries. In other words, do they view certain countries more favorably than others, and therefore those applicants get into a quote-unquote better residency training program than others and ultimately can provide different levels of care? I don't know. I think, yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. So what do you think, Jay? Balance it out for us on the strengths and weaknesses of this uh, study. Believable, not believable, major questions to be answered still? I think on the whole, the study is well-powered and they rigorously adjust there for possible confoundings. And, and I think in, in my mind, that lends credence to the findings. And I think it is believable. I think, you know, on the whole, I haven't really noticed much of a difference between the international medical graduates I train with and the you know, U.S. or Canadian medical graduates that I train with. So uh, to me, this is a believable study. Yeah, and I mean, I agree with you in some, some sense that I think that overall the findings, which I would interpret to say that there really is no difference between somebody who's trained in a medical school outside of the United States in this case versus inside of the United States would be any different quality as a level of doctor based on their training. But I do wonder whether the finding of a difference in mortality, that being lower if you're treated by an IMG physician, isn't accounted for by some other confounding bias that we haven't measured in this study. For example, like you said, potentially the severity of illness that patients present with, depending on which hospital they're at. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I, I don't know that I would take this as saying, you know, that U.S. medical graduates are, are causing more mortality. I think I think that the main drive for this study is to look for an important difference, and I don't think that we really found an important difference. I think it really just suggests that, you know, the IMG or USMG, uh, whichever doctor you have, is is very capable and going to give you the same quality of care. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that for me would be the main takeaway point is that in an ever-increasing xenophobic world, I think that we should come to respect all of our colleagues, regardless of where they're trained, because this study lends credence to the fact that they are equally qualified to provide high-quality care to our patients. Well, thanks, Jay. That was a great study. I'm really glad we brought that up. I always love policy-level studies, as many of you know. Let's move on to the study that I chose for this week which is kind of, we're sort of on a theme here of Policy Week a little bit. And and this was a really interesting study that came out of JAMA Internal Medicine in January 2017 that looked at physicians' um, expectations of benefits and harms uh, when it comes to treatments, screening, and tests. And this was published by Tammy Hoffman. So I thought our listeners would take pleasure in hearing about it. Oh, that sounds really interesting. So what's the bottom line of the article? So this was a systematic review. Um, And it examined all studies that quantitatively, not qualitatively, but quantitatively assessed clinicians' expectations of the benefits and harms of any treatment, test, or screening test. And what it found was that physicians rarely, rarely had accurate expectations of either the benefits or harms. And so we correctly estimated benefits only about 13% of the time, and we correctly estimated harm only about 11% of the time. And... You know, sadly, we more often underestimated harm and overestimated benefit. Well, I guess that sort of leads to the next question of why did you choose this article? Well, I think from a rounds table, you know, director, this study is really relevant to our show because we review the benefits and harms of treatments and the late, coming out of the latest medical research published on a weekly basis. 
And so what's so interesting about this study is that it quantifies how we as physicians translate our you know, interpretations of studies into our decision making using estimates of benefit or harm. So we live in an age where there is concern over escalating demand for medical care. Healthcare costs are on the rise and we're concerned that people are asking for too much. But we don't actually understand necessarily the drivers of it. Is it patients are asking for it too much? Physicians are ordering too much? So expectations of a particular intervention, particularly overly optimistic ones, may actually lead to overuse. And there has been previous systematic review by the same group who published this study that found that patients generally overestimate benefits and underestimate harms of medical interventions, but we don't really have good homogeneous studies of physicians across the literature. So this study tried to bring it all together in a systematic way to, to uncover what physicians feel about the expectations of the benefits and harms of the things that we do. So why don't you take us through the design of the study and uh, where it took place? Yeah, so as you already have heard, it was a systematic review, and as I mentioned, it was quantitative, not a qualitative understanding of why physicians uh, have these expectations. They looked at only primary studies. They didn't have any restrictions on participant eligibility. So this is an important point. The participants, which are the physicians, you actually didn't have to be a provider of the intervention studied. So, for example, they could ask you what were the expected harms and benefits of a chest x-ray screening for lung cancer, but you didn't actually, you you could have been a urologist who never really um, ordered chest x-rays for lung cancer to participate in that study. And then, you know, as all good systematic reviews do, they looked at four major medical literature repositories, Medline, Embase, Cumulative Index of Nursing and Allied Health Literature, as well as PsycInfo. And they went from the beginning of those databases when they were first formed all the way until March of 2015. So pretty up to date. And then as usual, they look through, you know, the, the references and contacted authors as any good review should. So, so what was the primary question? So they asked the question, do clinicians have accurate expectations of the benefits and harms of any treatment test or screening test? And to answer this, they examined studies that included expectations for medical imaging, cancer screening and treatment, fetal and maternal medicine, cardiovascular disease prevention and management, uh, as well as surgery and medications. So to just to clarify that a bit, it's a, you know, a dichotomous variable. So yes, they overestimated or no, they didn't overestimate the benefit. So for example, in stroke reduction with treatment of aspirin and, you know, we know, let's say the actual reduction in risk is arbitrarily 30%. Physicians who overestimated that regardless of by how much, that was, yes, you overestimated that risk. And similarly for bleeding, you know, let's say 10% risk of GI bleeding on aspirin for secondary prevention, yes or no, did physicians over or underestimate that harm. Make sense? Yeah, definitely. So what were what were the main findings of this study? So they screened just over 8,000 articles, and in the end, 48 studies met criteria for inclusion in the review. The studies were primarily all surveys. You call up or you send out surveys to physicians to ask them about the benefits and harms of treatments, etc. And this was done between 1981 and 2005. All in all, they had 13,000 participants throughout all the different studies included. 20 of those studies focused on imaging, so they asked about things like radiation risk and risks of the radiological procedures. Eight focused on screening, 
So mammography screening, prostate cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening, and 20 focused on treatments. Things like use of drugs in pregnancy, uh, antipsychotic use, warfarin and atrial fibrillation, among others. The main results were as follows. First, MDs incorrectly estimate benefit. So we, we only get the estimate of a, of a benefit of a screening test or intervention about 10 to 11% of the time. Where do we get this right? Well, we get it right in the benefit of aspirin and stroke or atrial fibrillation, statins for coronary artery disease, and mammography screening for breast cancer. Where do we get it wrong? Meaning we overestimate the benefit. Well, antibiotics and tonsillitis, a digital rectal exam for prostate screening, and hormone replacement therapy for a variety of indications. And so what, what about harms? With harms, we get it right estimating the you know, uh, risk of harm only about 13% of the time. So where do we estimate that risk correctly? Well, we estimate it with acetaminophen use in pregnancy correctly, and also cancer risks from chest x-rays. Where do we get it wrong? And what we do is we often underestimate the harm. Well, that's in cancer risk in abdominal CTs, um, bone scans, and lumbar x-rays, so a lot of cancer risk with radiation exposure. The other things that we found was we overestimate benefit about 30% of the time, but we overestimate harm only 5% of the time. So as I already sort of mentioned above, we often overestimate the benefit far more often than we overestimate the harm. And conversely, we underestimate the harm about 30 to 34% of the time versus we only underestimate the benefit 9% of the time. So systematically, physicians aren't accurate uh, in their expectations of benefits and harms, and we very often overestimate the benefit and underestimate the harm. So we're, we're just overly optimistic is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. There are problems with that. But it would be nice to know in this study, as far as things that I'd like to point out, just how much physicians over and underestimate the effects to help inform how clinically relevant this may be. So, you know, for example, with the aspirin and stroke analogy I was giving above, if we overestimate the benefit by 2%, does that matter? It might fall into an incorrect overestimation from this particular study, but it's pretty close. Does it really matter? I agree. I think just one point I, I, I'd want to raise uh, you, you had mentioned that some of the physicians were not necessarily involved directly in the intervention being offered, like you said, urologists for chest x-rays. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether you think that might be an issue, just what, maybe they aren't any better than a, a layperson in judging risk and something that's not their purview. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely one of the potential limitations of this particular study. And we don't know how often that happened of the 13,000 participants involved in this systematic review, we don't know how many aren't involved in the particular test or treatment that they're being asked about. I imagine it's a minority because if I'm a primary study author conducting a study on the risks of chest x-rays, I'm likely to want to design my study to ask people who do chest x-rays and order them frequently rather than ask a bunch of people that don't because that would just be kind of not a nonsensical design. That being said, we can't actually say from this particular conclusions how often that happens. Any, any other issues you'd want to, or limitations you'd want to bring up? Well, I mean, you know, we talked a lot about the focus 
on harm, almost 70% of the studies in this systematic review actually focused on harm expectations. So, you know, there might be some inaccuracy in how often we overestimate benefit because we just didn't look at it that much in this particular study or in general in the literature. We don't often ask people about the expectations of benefit. Um, and I think most importantly, we don't know why physicians are this inaccurate. You know, that's the big question for me coming away from this is why are physicians so biased towards overestimating benefit and underestimating harm? We just don't know. I, I think that's a fascinating question. You know, I think that as things like choosing wisely and things about making good treatment and uh, decisions becomes more and more important, I think that this particular focus as to why we overestimate benefit and underestimate harm plays actually a really critical role in figuring out how we can better choose wisely, I think. Yeah, so just to circle back on sort of the main takeaways from this discussion in this study, overall physicians are not that good at estimating the perceived benefit or harms of the tests and the treatments that we order and provide. And this overestimation of benefit and underestimation of harm raises concern for a phenomenon that's known as therapeutic illusion. I love that term, therapeutic illusion, which is an unjustified enthusiasm for treatments on the part of both doctors and previously shown by this group, the patients as well. Now, this might be a major driver as to why we see such overuse of medical testing and treatments, putting patients in harm's way with way less benefit than expected by either party and potentially more harm as well. But I want to say, Jay, the solutions to this problem, regardless of what the driver are, aren't easy, since the reasons why physicians may have this inaccuracy is likely to be multifactorial. So there might be educational things uh, surrounding it. There might be medical legal drivers. There might be external pressures, say from patients, for example. Um, one of the solutions posed by the authors is that a user-friendly, up-to-date, and concise clinical decision aid repository is needed for this 21st century to effectively engage in shared decision-making. Now, there's a couple that uh, I know of and one that they mentioned as well. So as a resource for our listeners who are interested, in Canada, the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute has a patient decision aids database with links all over to trusted resources. And then they're developing a project called the, Sh the Magic Project, and the particular uh, intervention is called Share It, which is developing the same kind of thing, a, a digital uh, repository that's based on the grade recommendations for guidelines, um, but uh, unfortunately isn't available as of yet, but it looks like it's in the pipeline. Oh, I look forward to seeing that. Mm -hmm. So may maybe these repositories will help physicians stay up to date on the rapidly evolving benefits and harms of treatments uh, as we struggle to do so on the rounds table every week. <laughs> Certainly hope so. Well, thanks, Jay, for an engaging discussion this week. Uh, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Jay, what is catching your attention this week? Yeah, it's actually not what I'm reading this week, uh, Kieran. It's what I'm listening to. I was listening to another podcast called the Best Science Medicine Podcast run by uh, a PharmD from UBC and a family medicine doctor from Alberta, And they actually were talking about an approach to guidelines. So I know that one day I will have to take the Royal College and uh, I was kind of interested in what their thoughts were. And they, they really have a, a evidence-based approach, and they actually kind of blew my mind when they went through. They basically said that um, 
only about 10% of guideline data is based on RCT data, which to me was kind of, took me aback a little bit. And they take a very critical eye towards guidelines and kind of, you know, what's driving the data and what's driving actually what's formulating the guidelines, which I think actually ties in kind of well to your article about perhaps there's some, you know, element of overestimation of benefit and underestimation of harm that could be playing a role. And they had three podcasts on it, and I, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, too. You know, I think often if there is no data, societies are left by expert consensus to come up with recommendations for people to use and how to treat patients. And there's probably pressures to have those in place, but not always the data to back it up. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Jay. Well, my interest piece this week is, you know, you don't always get what you pay for. And it was a study of 72,000 physicians at 3,000 hospitals that looked at, did your mortality correlate to the amount that was spent on your hospital stay? And they found that the spending among doctors varied by as much as about 10%, so a fairly wide spread in how much doctors spend on an individual patient adjusted for all the you know usual things. But there was no difference and no association between 30-day mortality readmissions, and uh, overall physician spending. So in other words, more spending did not yield better results. And in this case, you don't always get what you pay for. Wow, that's uh, interesting stuff, Karen. Thanks, Jay, for joining us this week. We hope to have you back sometime soon. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. And if we don't have you on before you head off to Stanford, hopefully you'll call in from lovely U.S. and uh, keep us up to date on all the things that are happening down there. Uh, definitely will do. Have a great day. Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table, follow us on Twitter at rounds table, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week? 